multiple levels. Like on, on multiple levels, is it kind of like not cool to have on campus? Yeah. Um, cut. Do you have anything else? Oh, and then the um, the uh, petition. Oh, the petition's right. just. Oh yeah. Um, can talk about it. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. if people want to get involved in, you know, in the pro-choice, let's call it the movement. Yeah. Um, is there is there anything <laughs> that you could suggest they do? Um, yeah, I mean, specifically for the UBC campus, the Genocide Awareness Project comes every year on International Women's Day, and yeah, so they, they do plan it on International Women's Day, so that's why we have this um, plan. But there is a petition going around, and the petition is specifically about the images themselves. I think a lot of folks um, who are maybe not sure about the issue um, are are concerned about freedom of speech, and I think that the images themselves are kind of taking away from that um, because they're just impacting people right away without giving them the chance to like decide whether or not they see them. So the petition is strictly saying like we don't want these images anymore on campus um, and that's going around. There's an online version as well as a written version. Um, yeah and if you want to get even more involved you can send a personal email um, and like complain about your own like um, as a student or as a faculty member or whatever, you can complain that you were um, personally harassed by the images and make it more of a personal level. So there's like a few things you can do. Perfect. Well, thank you very much and you know, happy International Women's yeah, Day. Yeah, you too. Okay. Awesome. And thanks to Morgan for conducting those interviews and to both, I think it's GAP on campus and uh, I'm not sure what it's UBC Pro-Life uh, group and the UBC Pro-Choice group for those interviews today. Um, and that is our program for today, which is March 8th, International Women's Day. Today's newscast was brought to you entirely by volunteer efforts. So if you would like to share your comments or get involved or give us a hot news tip, you can contact us through our email, news at citr.ca. You can subscribe to our podcast and listen to our list- latest interviews and segments on our website, citr.ca slash news. For more independent news, join us on Monday at 5 p.m. for another edition of News 101. I'm Claire Eagle. And I'm Jamie Hoholek. Today's show was produced by Claire Eagle. From the entire news team at CITR, thank you for listening. And coming up next, a special International Women's Day interview with Enterprising Woman Making Art, conducted by Art Director Megan Thomas. Right here on CITR 101.9 FM. Thank you so much for coming into CITR and talking to us uh, about the upcoming Women in Film Festival. Thank you for having me. And Karen, would you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your latest project that's going to be highlighted at the upcoming festival? Uh, I am a filmmaker based in Vancouver. I am a writer, director, and producer. And uh, my short film, The Stolen, is actually playing on Saturday night at the Women in Film Festival at 9 p.m. Now tell us a little bit about The Stolen as a film and, you know, give us, you know, your standard synopsis, but I want to know a little bit about the genesis of the project. Hmm. The Stolen is actually a little dark 
fairy tale fantasy that I made last year. Um, actually, I think it's, two, it's 2011. Goodness. Uh, we filmed it in the, in the fall of 2011, and uh, we finished it in 2012. And it's about a little girl who's bullied, and she makes uh, a wish. And basically, uh, the, the wishes ends up with uh, dark consequences. Um, I'm known primarily as a, as a horror filmmaker, so this was a bit of a departure in the fact that I wanted to make something that was really pretty. But funny enough, it's still getting programmed at a lot of horror festivals anyway. <laughs> Is it hard to escape that aesthetic? I think so. I think it's actually in, like, it's what I do. So I, I guess whatever I do, it doesn't matter what it is, it ends up a little darker than probably even other people intended. Are you a little darker than you seem then? Uh, very probably. It's, um, <laughs> you, you know, it's well hidden and it's about balance. So I, I think I, I, I'm probably a cheery pessimist and uh, I don't actually sleep in a coffin or, you know, uh, wear bat wings, but uh, it's, it's there. Tell me a little bit about your history with the festival, because you said that you're all over the festival this year, and, and this is your second year. So tell us about the first time that you were featured at the Women in Film Festival. Ah, um, I was featured in the Women in Film Festival last year with my short film Doll Parts, which uh, was a hitchhiking horror film. Basically, it was a fantastic experience. Um, it was uh, just really supportive of the filmmakers. And again, you know, even though it says that it's a women in film festival, I think it really appeals to a lot more than just women. Um, There's just a real breadth of, of talent that was on the screen, and I was really amazed and like I felt so supported out of the, the, the festival, which is this year um, I'm really lucky to actually be um, teaching a workshop as well. And uh, they've honored me with a Artistic Innovation uh, Spotlight Award on Thursday night at the galas. One of the reasons that these festivals exist is because, and, and why days like International Women's Day exist and special programming for women, and that a lot of mainstream media kind of systemically organized, be it the actual business aspect or even just what people are used to aesthetically um, tends to skew male, and, and you tend to get this kind of mainstream preoccupation with male art. So can you tell me a little bit about if you have felt that in your career, or is that something that you that you haven't felt as a female uh, filmmaker? I think when I started in this industry, I, I actually started as a lawyer, and I started in the financing side of things, and as a producer, I never felt the, the glass ceiling. Um, I switched over to writing and directing probably six or seven years ago, and that's when I slammed my head on it. You're right about it being systemic. It's actually not that they actually, and not that the system's set up, to not be inclusive, but it's how people read scripts, what we consider, what is a good script, what are the story beats, what is a strong protagonist, you know, those sorts of things end up being, in a lot of ways, by default male. So mm -hmm. I think that that's what happens again and again. And, and for me, because I've chosen to really work in the, the horror and genre uh, side of things, it's even more so. If you can p get past those hurdles, what I found is that the audience is very receptive. It's the fact that the system that's in place may not be so, even given the, the fact that through government sources and everything, everyone's trying to make things more equal, but what ends up on the screen is actually very, very, very unequal. And uh, all you have to do is look at the Hollywood stats, where we're, I think for feature films, uh, female directors are down to 6% overall. Wow. And when our reality is being given back to us in this sort of way, how on earth do we actually define ourselves? I, I think uh, it's, it's one of the big impetuses for me actually writing and directing and continuing, even when things can be a bit tough. And it's funny because horror, both in terms of producers and consumers, um, is seen, at least stereotypically, 
uh, to be a very male-dominated but also male-consumed genre. And I think you can really see that in, like, the really hyper-sexualized um, women and, like, all the violence against women. But I love horror. And so tell me a little bit about creating horror that spoke to you as a woman but also, you know, was something that was that you thought lots of people could enjoy. Yeah. Um, actually, the, it's... Um... I think that it's it's a misnomer that the consumers of horror tend to be male. Mm-hmm, we actually are a huge component of female. When you go to horror festivals, which is where a lot of my films actually play, there's a lot of female horror fans out there, and we're consuming just as much because I think that it still speaks to us. It speaks to some of the our darkest fears. It's out there, and this is a place where we can almost safely watch on, on some levels. As a filmmaker, um, when you're actually dealing with the, the subject matter, you know, there's a there's a fine line that I have to walk. Uh, say I'm doing a rape scene, just how to desexualize something like that and yet show the real horror of what's actually happening without shying away from it and saying, you know, the the criticism I'll get if I can't show it is that, well, you're a woman, you can't direct this sort of violence. You don't know how to do this or you're too squeamish to do it. And as a fan of the genre, you wouldn't want to skirt around that. But on the other hand, to do the very same thing seems to be wrong to me. So it's about where you put the camera. It's about that identity of where that voice is and where you, the viewer, are actually identifying. Because when I look at uh, horror films, a lot of times the camera is from the perspective of the killer. We stalk our victims. We show, you know, basically how we how we promote that sense of dread and fear is where we put the camera. And as a female filmmaker, I'm, I'm cognizant of that. But on the other hand, I'm always trying to see where I can actually play around with it. Like as in, if it's a rape sequence, what if we see the rapist from her perspective instead of watching her squirming on the ground? You know, like how do we actually push the bounds on, the, on that? And uh, it's a big component of what I do as well. It's ironic that anyone would say that a woman couldn't direct a rape scene. Like it seems like a woman would understand the horror of that so strongly not that i mean not that that's not an issue for men as well actually now have you always been a horror junkie i think so what what are some of the 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 pieces that you've loved over time you know it's funny because i think i came to horror from a fairly literary perspective so my first books that i really loved were edgar Allan poe daphne du maurier's rebecca you know all those gothic horror pieces i i always enjoyed reading um and you know even if it came to things like dracula and frankenstein they tended to be from that perspective rather than from the film. But my dad was a huge, I, well, I think he, he took me to my first film and it unfortunately was Jaws. And I was like, why would you take a five-year-old to Jaws? And he said, well, you really liked fish. So, you know, I... St- uh, Ruined so- that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, he never he never treated me like, uh, you know, that girly girl. So I watched a lot of Beheaded Samurai. I watched a lot of Revenge. He, he was a huge Charles Bronson fan. So there's a lot of, like, that sort of film growing up with my dad. And it, it was kind of like the father-daughter bonding moment. So I think in a lot of ways, it's really personal on that level. And then finally, you know, it was still getting into Stephen King and that sort of stuff. And by the time we could sneak in and watch things, I actually started, surprisingly, with a lot of Canadian classics, like Happy Birthday to Me, mm-hmm. which I love the shish Kebabs, you know, like that cover, you know, is watching uh, Poltergeist and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, all of those seminal 80s films that basically they were at their their heyday when when we basically um, were growing up. So I think that that really informed where I was going to go. And by the time I actually started making films, I really was caught up in, in Asian horror. So I loved Ringu and I loved Juwan and all of that. And, and to this day, I, I'm really uh, loving what the what the Koreans are doing with serial killer thrillers, you know, and I, I, I just love the artistry of that. And I guess I'm always looking at horror basically as a real 
film art form rather than treating it like it's a shocky sort of thing. You know, I'm, I don't think I'm capable of doing a found footage piece. It's just not stylistically interesting to me. Not that I didn't enjoy the Blair Witch Project and, you know, some of the earlier pieces, but I love when it's actually like a, a real film. Like, you know, to me, it's still, I think I've seen Clockwork Orange like 16 times. You know, I, I still love those films and it's Kubrick, it's Polanski, it's, you know, that sort of just... It's, I guess it's considered horror, but a lot of times it kind of crosses the boundaries into, mm-hmm. into something that pushes, pushes us and, and pushes the, the definitions of what genre actually is. Are there any tropes of uh, the horror genre, um, as you've kind of defined it, that you love or loathe? <laughs> I, I actually do love, like, uh, Doll Parts, my short film, is actually a, a play on the hitchhiker theme. We just actually finished uh, wrapping last week on the feature version of that. And so that's what Congratulations. Thank you. We've been working on that. And it's been playing around with the idea, in this case, of the female revenge fantasy, but from my perspective. So it's equal parts samurai film mixed with, you know, kind of gothic horror. What I probably will never do is, is again, the found footage stuff. I just don't know how to do it. You know, it's, you know when it's done really cleverly, I love that. But for me, it's just, I, I think I, I like a pretty frame way too much. So. so tell me a little bit about what you've just finished. So that was, once again, Karen Lamb. Um, and now we bring you our piece by Megan Thomas on Enterprising Women Making Art. Hi, this is Megan, arts director at CITR 101.9 and host of the Arts Report, Wednesdays at 5. Recently, I talked to the organizers and artists at Enterprising Women Making Art, a cooperative in the downtown east side, a studio space and retail space for women making art. First, I talked to Jessica and Jacqueline about the values and day-to-day of UMA. Then we talked to three artists from the collective about their art and about how they feel both about Yuma and about International Women's Day and empowering women. Here's our conversations. We're also featuring two songs by Kay Slater. Don't Fence Me In and Wouldn't It Be Lovely, cover she does on her ukulele. Check her out on YouTube. Jessica and Jacqueline. Could you guys introduce yourselves and your role at uh, Enterprising Women Making Art? So my name is Jessica Newman and I've been with UMA for just about three years but I've been with the Tira Women's Resource Society for five. So I started as a frontline support worker in one of the um, housing units. Um, It's been quite the journey and it's been 
really inspiring to work with the artists and artisans. Hi, my name is Jacqueline Sharp, and I am the art coordinator slash store manager with Enterprising Women Making Art. And I came on with Atira as a support worker as well as a relief support worker. I This position came open with, with Uma, and so now this is where I am. I've been with Uma for five months now, so I'm fairly new to the position. Um, it's, it's really interesting, and the artists, the women are amazing, and... Uh, what are the goals and the values? What is the uh, this home, Enterprising Women Making Art? What are you guys looking to do for women in the downtown east side? And, and I guess more so, how are you helping them do it for themselves? Well, the, the main um, purpose of the program, it was, UMA was a development initiative of... Uh, and launched in 2003 by Atira Women's Week. Janice Ab, our CEO, she noticed a lot of women, talented women artists and artisans in the neighborhood selling their work for two, three, four, five dollars when they might have spent 10 hours, 20 hours beating um, an intricate design or or whatnot. So she saw a real need and no no space for women to sell their work and and to hone their skills to have sellable sellable marketable work so um it started actually in the shelter and it started with a couple of women i believe that were beaters and then it evolved from that to some card makers and some knitters and then eventually uh the program moved over to head office and then jewelry makers started coming and a potter and from there now we've been in the space um, here on Cordova for four years and you see all kinds of disciplines so from jewelry to contemporary art to art you've never seen before (laughs) to more traditional crafts. Uh, One of the main awesome things about a tier women's resource society is we meet women where they're at and they're the experts of their lives so um, this program we offer the a safe space and a safe way for women to um, gain income as well as gain the skills and knowledge they need to have a successful arts-based business Um, and the studio space is free for the women to use and all the workshops we offer are free and the workshops can vary from business-based workshops to arts-based workshops to health and wellness workshops and most of them are all of the all of the workshops are taught by volunteers and that includes some of the uh, core artists which I'll talk about how that works in a bit but the core a lot of the core artists mentor as well as teach workshops um, in the studio and then we have the rest are volunteers from the community so whether they be students um, people who have retired or women that have um, that are not working right now but want to give back um, so it's quite it's quite the hub and it's quite um, 
there's a great sense of community and it's also I guess you could say community driven um yeah and then for the the artist aspect so we have the core artists um so once again this program isn't a one-all cookie cutter model so um for core artists each year there's a uh core artist intake and application process and then um me and Jacqueline uh interview each person that has filled out the application um and then once they are once um the core artists are selected we actually sit down and come up with goals of what you want to do over the coming year and then we have check-ins throughout the year uh so it might again meeting women where they're at it might be for some women i could never commi- i can never make commitments so i'm my goal is just to be committed into coming to the space or it could be i want to launch two new product lines or i want this year to um develop my business skills or whatever it is so um that being said then uh core artists also commit four hours a week to the studio so it doesn't have to be it's not going to be a 9 to 5 kind of thing it's well i have i may have a disability so i can i'll try and get out of the house one once a week for four hours or twice a week for 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 two hours so it's really what not setting you up to fail it's what you can achieve based on the constraints or what whatever's going on in your life um but then making that commitment and having some accountability um but sometimes it doesn't always work so at the following check in it might be like it didn't go so well so how can i support you um and having a conversation mm-hmm. and then even at the end of the year um we have a graduation but core artists can can apply for the next year so it's not uh you've completed by um it's a continual process so we've had some artists where they started off on one project and they've built on that project and then started new projects um uh in the second year of their core artist de- designation and then the second part is there's the visiting artists so they don't have quite as a commitment um to the space which is just okay too but they can access the space so again all the workshops using the space except for they don't have an actual um their own desk and workstation area as well as they can still also sell um their work in the stores and also attend off-site sales events which you mainly have in the summer um and in winter fall um, they're always welcome to apply for the core core artist um intake each year and some of our visiting artists actually spend more time in the space than some mm-hmm. of our core artists so Jacqueline you said you've been here for 5 months can you give me a little bit about what you expected coming into the space and how that's been um any surprises success stories changes that you have experienced during your time here at uh, Uma 
I came on with Enterprising Women Making Art in October of 2012, and it it was right around the time of year where leading up to Christmas time, and so there was a lot of craft fairs um, that I jumped right into. Um, so I learned I learned a lot immediately. Um, the artists were were really key in teaching me about my role here as well as the art coordinator store manager um, they had they've been through the the program they, they know the routine for craft fairs um, and so they they were were huge in in showing me the ropes and letting me know what I needed to do and take care of and um, and so they've they've been huge in holding my hand through the learning process and that's been great it just it shows it speaks to their um, dedication and their knowledge of of what their what their endeavors are as far as their small businesses their artwork what they want to see happen their goals for themselves they um, they they um, ask me often about um, upcoming sales, off-site events, cause as well as the two storefronts that we have um, here at the studio. And then we have an, another, a second store on Hawk Street at, at 802 Hastings. And so we have the two storefronts where the artists and the women are able to sell their work and show their work. Um, but as well, we facilitate off-site events as well. So they're quite involved there, um, and they have to um, give their time to, to assisting with setting that up, um, sitting at the tables as well. So they do the, they interact with the public and they speak about their work um, as well. We also have Eastside Fridays, which is a once a month um, event, one Friday of every month. We host a, it's like an open house. So we open the store or the studio up to the public and they um, come in and we sometimes we have entertainment sometimes we'll have a um, so some sort of entertainment plan for them um, the last one that we held in January February was an artist talk so we had a lot of the artists um, get up and speak about their work and introduce themselves and speak about their goals their their background in art um, and so it's an, it's a, that's a good opportunity as well for them to um, be involved in the studio. It's another aspect of, of, of getting involved with, with this space is volunteering, giving their time, and as well networking with other artists as well. I think that's a, a big part as well because they all have their own um, knowledge base. So what they've shared with me coming on... Um, being new in this role, they share with one another as well. They share um, their network of resources, of um, different opportunities for small businesses, that kind of thing, and workshops that they might know about, and different art events, and, and that kind of thing. So, so, Could you share with me a, um, an anecdote, perhaps, of a success story that you think is representative of what you're doing here at and what the artists are doing for themselves? Um, I, well, we had one one artist. Um, she 
we had, I think, a woman come in off um, at the studio. She was just a customer. She came into the studio, and she saw her work. Um, and f- from seeing seeing her work here in the studio on display, she wanted to do a, 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 a local television segment on her. So that that was a, an opportunity that presented itself through um, through Uma being being here um having that person the the media someone in the media come in and see the work and see the value in it and the specialness of what these women are making and doing so so having that forum for people one all of our volunteers that run the workshops and whatnot come from different parts of and different communities all around uh vancouver and actually surrounding areas like one of my volunteers comes all the way from Langley by bus and another one comes all the way from uh, Delta White Rock area so um, there's a real it's a hub for cross pollinate I I think of bees so cross pollinization (laughs) of uh, different areas different people different experiences because we all wear different coats Mm -hmm. so to speak um, so there's that pollination, but then even um, just Uma itself and um, the space that is uh, given for creativity and and challenging the status quo um, in regards to this is a real alternative form of business and um, a real alternative form of uh, um, being a... Uh, active participant of the local economy um, so it it its presence does just I think challenge challenge the status quo and and the and notions and assumptions with um, the neighborhood because the one amazing thing of working here the, it, the last five years in the neighborhood is most people don't realize how, how creative and how amazing it is down here and there's more sense of community here than I've ever experienced anywhere else so um yeah okay do we want to talk so Jacqueline, to tell us a little bit about the sure. next Eastside Friday that's coming up here it's a St. Patrick's Day theme so the next Eastside Friday that Uma is hosting will be on March 15th it's uh, going to be a St. Patrick's theme, and what we're going to plan for this Eastside Friday is to have uh, a kind of a jam. Uh, we have some people that are going to come in and play some acoustic and bring some instruments, so it's going to be like an open mic, and that will be hosted at 54 East Cordova Street, and it's from 6 till 9 on March 15th.
I'm Amber Gunther, and I like to create things with my hands. I like to be creative and expressive, and I make jewelry out of wire. I have uh, all different kinds of designs. I'm trying to decide on a final line, and that's why I enjoy being involved in this group, because they're helping me to just slowly get my act together. Uh, hi, my name is Dinora Becerra, and actually I'm a, a painter. My, my media is oil and canvas, basically, and sometimes uh, hot wax. Uh, I like uh, to work on painting flowers and a little bit um, be part of a more feminine movement. I also paint vaginas, and I like to have the opportunity in this organization because they are empowering women all kind of women, any kind of backgrounds, and any kind of activity and creativity. And I think that is uh, very motivating because women have to be empowered, and that's what I like to portray on my paintings, the value and the power of women in themselves. Hi, I'm Montana King, and um, I'm a local artist in the downtown Eastside and have been for a long time. Um, my major work is 